reading verses 14 to 21 inclusive. A prayer for the Ephesians and for us too. For this reason, I kneel before the Father, from whom his whole family in heaven and on earth derives its name. I pray that out of his glory riches, sorry, I pray that out of his glorious riches, he may strengthen you with power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. And I pray that you, being rooted and established in his love, may know may have power, together with all the saints, to grasp how wide and long and high and deep is the love of Christ, and to know this love that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled to the measure of all the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in Christ and in the church and in, and in Christ Jesus throughout all generation forever and ever. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Absolutely. Please finish this sentence for me. <clears throat> The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. That's true. And we rightly say that whenever we want to emphasize and celebrate the taking of a first step. You went to that first AA meeting. You filled out the application to return to school after many years. You bought the gym membership. The first step can be the hardest one. And it is right to celebrate it. But it is also true that the first step only has meaning in reference to the thousand mile journey. A journey by definition also ends with a single step. It has a destination and the first step is significant because it is a step towards something. If there's no destination we have a word for that too and it isn't journey it's called wandering. Now Many Christians are fond of saying that Christianity is about the journey. We recognize that the life of faith is a process of growth and learning to walk with God. That that's a daily thing, and that is true. But here, too, it is a journey with a destination. We are on a journey towards something. <clears throat> In our study of Ephesians so far, uh, we have seen the first steps of the journey. We have seen that God has chosen to adopt us as his children, that by the death of Christ we have obtained forgiveness of sins, that in Christ we have redemption or rescue from one mode of being to another, death to life, deserving wrath but receiving kindness, following Satan to being in Christ, Walking in sin to walking in good works. Alienated from God's people to being fellow citizens and family members with God's people. Ephesians uses all of this language. But all of this is what God has done to launch us on this journey. They are the beginning steps. And today we get to see the destination. The goal toward which God is moving us. In our passage today from Ephesians chapter 3, Paul 
is praying for the Ephesians, and he is praying with the end goal in mind. And the signal that lets us trace what Paul is thinking in this passage is the repetition of the words that or so that. Paul says, I pray for A so that B. B is necessary so that C. And C has got to happen so that D, which is what it's all about. Last week, Sunday, I watched the final game of the World Cup. And since I can't cheer for my own country, Canada can hardly see the World Cup from where we're standing, I had to cheer for the country of my ancestors, which happened to be the Netherlands, who sadly ended up losing to Spain in extra time. And many of you saw that game. Now, many nations of the world have been playing in qualifying matches for a couple of years already before the tournament that just finished. And if... In August 2008, when Spain was about to take on Bosnia-Herzegovina in a qualifying match, if you had asked then, the Spanish players, what they wanted, they might have said, we want to win today so that we can be one of the 32 countries that qualifies for the World Cup in 2010, so that we can win there in the early round and advance all the way to the final so that we can win the game and be the world champions. They wanted to win in August 2008 because they already had their hearts set on last week's Sunday. Well, that's what Paul does here. I pray this for you now because I have this end in mind. So here's what he writes. First he says, for this reason, I bow my knees. He prays. Well, for what reason? Well, he's picking up what he started to say in chapter 3, verse 1, where he writes, for this reason. So we go back to the end of chapter 2 to figure out what he's talking about. And there, Paul has told his readers that Gentile Christians, like Trophimus the Ephesian and you, have been given full and equal status as God's people. That the walls of hostility have been broken down and there is one unified people of God. And that this unity has been accomplished by and continues in Jesus Christ. Because of this reality, Paul says, for this reason, I pray. And then he tells him what he prays for and why. Now, I'm going to walk us through this passage backwards this morning. Uh, When I lead a wedding rehearsal, um, I always start by having the bride and groom and the wedding party come up on the stage and find the place where they need to stand. So that when we practice coming in, they know where they have to end up. And so that's what we're going to do this morning. We're going to take our part on the platform, stand on the stage, as it were. We'll see where we're going to end up. And that is at the last part of Ephesians 3, verse 19. This is our finishing place. Here's the goal. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That you may be filled with all the fullness of God. That is God's destination, his goal for us, individually, but also, and the New Testament has a lot more to say about this, for us corporately. That the church, as a church, would be filled with the fullness of God. Paul says basically the same thing in chapter 4, verse 13. This time he's using the metaphor of a a body that is growing into mature adulthood. And the mature church, he says, is one that attains to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. 
This is the destination. This is where our faith journey of a thousand miles is taking us. This is where God has set his heart for our sakes. And this is where we set our hearts to. That God wants to give himself to us. To inhabit us, to draw us to himself, and to fill us with himself. Now to be filled with the fullness of God is not like a glass filled with water. Where the water and the glass are always separate items and the glass can be half full or three quarters full. We don't say I'm three quarters full of God. Think instead of a baby who is a complete person but grows into the fullness of adulthood over the years. Think of a school teacher and the difference between his first day in the classroom and the last day before retirement. You know, on day one, he's still fully a school teacher, but with the years of experience, he has a fullness. He is more fully a teacher. This spring, my five and six-year-old boys played soccer. And last Sunday, I watched Thomas Muller and Diego Forland play soccer. Now, they and my boys are soccer players, but the players at the World Cup are fuller soccer players. Now, God's word tells us that God has brought us to himself and adopted us as his children. And we need to know, know this, that God has already given us all of himself. The Bible says we have the mind of Christ. We have the spirit of God himself indwelling us. But God intends for us that we grow into the fullness of that reality. That we might be filled with all the fullness of God. Have you ever felt like there must be more. That doing church or trying to be good or being religious or trying to pray or read the Bible because you know you should, that it, that it just doesn't seem like this is as good as it gets. Just yesterday, I saw a Bible lesson sheet for kids that positively made me shudder. It said on it, Daniel did the right thing and ate all his veggies. God loved Daniel, and God loves you too. My goodness, if we go to the biblical account of Daniel, and all that we can teach our kids is eat your veggies. But as adults, we fall into the same trap. We really do. We study the Bible for principles, or life lessons, or something that we can take with us into the day. And so we're reminded to be nice, and to be honest, feed the poor, serve in the church, pray faithfully, evangelize, forgive people. And so the arrow of our Christianity points toward all the good things that we need to start doing or all the bad things that we need to stop doing. And that's good, but is that all? Isn't there more? When you long for more for yourself or for the church, what you are longing for is to be filled with all the fullness of God. The intimacy of conversation with him. The strong knowledge of his presence. Knowing his thoughts on things. Feeling what he feels. Living from his values. All of these things. And the arrow of our Christianity then points toward God himself. And specifically to Jesus. He is the focus. He is the center. He is the all-consuming reality. He is the context in which all of our start doings and stop doings find their appropriate place. Neither overwhelming nor painful duty. 
Imagine a church that is filled with all, and catch that word, all, all the fullness of God. Imagine being a place where people come and then leave saying, God was in that place. I came face to face with God there and it crushed me, but it healed me and I feel like I'm alive for the first time ever. Imagine being a community of people who are filled with the fullness of God. Imagine the joy. Imagine the care for our world. Imagine the energy and effectiveness with which we bring God's kingdom. Imagine the worship. Imagine the unity. Imagine the fullness of life. Imagine the restored marriages, the broken addictions, the powerlessness of sin. Now think about it. Could being filled with all the fullness of God, really, could that mean anything less than that? That is where God is committed to bringing us as his people. Now notice the word that. That, literally, in order that, you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So something needs to be in place in order that you and I and we together may be filled with all the fullness of God. Well, what is that? We'll back up now to the last part of verse 17. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength together with all the saints to comprehend what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. In order for us to be filled with all the fullness of God, it is necessary for us to grasp and experience the love of Christ. Or to phrase it negatively, unless we know the love of Christ, it is impossible to be filled with all the fullness of God. And here, by the way, is the urgency of Christian mission. We preach Christ and we show his love because there is no other way for people to know God truly. A person's understanding and experience of God is directly proportional to their understanding and experience of the love of Christ. They and we need to know the love of Christ so that we can be filled with all the fullness of God. Now, three things about the love of Christ... First, that it is immeasurable. Paul makes this apparently self-contradictory statement here, that he wants us to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. To know what is beyond knowing. Now this morning already we've just sung these words, oh, the deep, deep love of Jesus, vast, unmeasured, boundless, free Rolling as a mighty ocean in its fullness over me. Underneath me, all around me, is the current of thy love. Strength to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth. And then right away to say, it can't be known. You can't reach or even see the upper limit of the love of Christ. Its depths cannot be plumbed. There are no edges, boundaries to it. And it is good for us this morning to stop and consider that for a second. Because I don't know that many of us believe it. I think many of us often feel like we have in fact gotten to the boundary of Christ's love and stepped across it. What if I don't always do the right thing and eat my veggies? What if I do worse than that? What about my addiction? What about my lust? What about those years of rebellion? They're hard to erase. 
And sometimes even without doing something terrible, we assume Christ doesn't love us just because we're consistently not a very good Christian. I get mad at my kids. I think church is boring. I don't pray very much, and truth be told, I don't want to pray. I know that Christ's love is huge, but I'm pretty sure that I'm outside of it. That is a lie from hell. If you're a Christian, that means that God has placed you in Christ, to use one of Paul's favorite phrases, and Christ loves you as he loves himself. He can't not love you. And if the love of Christ is too great to be grasped with our minds, can't know it, it can be known in our experience. It is an immeasurable love, but it is a love that washes gently over you in wave after wave, and you can't touch the bottom. The love of Christ is immeasurable. And secondly, and this is so crucial, the love of Christ can only be grasped in the context of the community of God's people. That you may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ. The Bible has so much to say about our life together as a community of Christians. So many instructions to love one another, honor one another, to bear one another's burdens, encourage one another, forgive one another. Lots of images in the Bible, like the fact that we are a body, that together we are built as a temple in which God lives by his spirit. The Bible doesn't know anything about the individual Christian apart from other Christians. It is with the saints that the love of God, that God is most fully known, and that the love of Christ is most fully experienced by us and demonstrated to others. It's only in the context of the other 87 keys on a piano keyboard that any single piano key knows what it means to make music. The same way it's only in the context of our brothers and sisters in Jesus that we know the love of Jesus. Uh, in my view, one of the great New Testament teachers of the last century, F.F. Bruce, says... It is a vain thing for Christian individuals or groups to imagine that they can better attain to the fullness of Christian maturity if they isolate themselves from their fellow believers. I think he's right. The love of Christ is immeasurable. The love of Christ can only be grasped in the context of the community of God's people. And third, we need God's help to grasp the love of Christ. Precisely because it is beyond our ability to understand it. Right? That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and depth of the love of Christ. Isn't that an odd thing to say? Strength to comprehend, to understand. But the love of Christ is so infinitely grand, so, so beyond our capability to grasp, that we need help from someone. We need our capabilities expanded. And how many of us have found ourselves, or maybe find ourselves even this morning, wanting to believe in Christ's love, but being just unable to? I know Christ loves people, but I just can't believe he loves me. And here, the prayer of the man in Mark chapter 9 becomes our prayer. Lord, I believe, but help my unbelief. I need help. 
I need strength. I need power to be able to comprehend the love of Christ. Because the love of Christ is immeasurable. It can only be grasped in the context of the community of God's people. And we need strength. We need help in order to be able to grasp it. In order for us to be filled with all the fullness of God, it is necessary for us to grasp and experience the love of Christ. Now notice again the word that. So that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and length and height and depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. So what now is needed so that we can know the love of Christ? Something has to happen. So we back up a little to the beginning of verse 17. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have power. The only way to know the love of Christ is to have Christ himself as a real presence in our lives. That's what we talk about when we talk about Becoming a Christian or getting saved. The Bible talks about this from God's perspective. He chooses and adopts us and gives us life in Christ and so on. This is something that God does. The Bible also talks about it from the perspective of our own experience. We repent and believe. We obey the gospel and so on. But what what happens when we become a Christian or when God saves us is that Christ comes to live in us. He dwells. Dwells, by the way, is is a word that means permanent resident. He doesn't just stay with us for a few weeks. He dwells. He dwells in our hearts through faith. And that's why we speak of the moment of conversion as asking Jesus into our hearts. And unless and until that happens, we cannot grasp the love of Christ. A man blind from birth can learn all about light and color, but until he gains his vision, he cannot know light and color. We need Christ in us to know his love. And this too, by the way, is corporate, not just individual. As Christ dwells in our hearts together, we become rooted and established in love and then have the strength together to comprehend the love of Christ. As Christ inhabits his church, we together know his love. And so this then is Paul's prayer. Verse 14, I bow my knees before the Father from whom every family in heaven and on earth is named or from whom his whole family Better translation. I bow my knees before the Father that according to the riches of his glory, this is what I'm praying, I'm praying that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith so that you can know the love of Christ with all the saints so that you can be filled with all the fullness of God. If we are to be filled with all the fullness of God, it starts with God strengthening us with his power. So this is what Paul prays, that according to the riches of God's glory, no half measures here, by the Spirit of God in us, there would be strength in our inner being, in the core, in the depths of who we are, ultimately so that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. Because if God has launched us on this journey in the first place, 
when we had no power to take any step at all, which is what chapters 1 and 2 make so clear, then it is a journey that requires God's strength and power all the way. Like Paul told the Galatians, having begun by the Spirit of God, are you now being perfected in your own strength? You foolish Galatians, he says to them, of course you can't be perfected in your own strength. If you're going to come to maturity, if you're going to reach the destination that God has for you, it can only be by the strength of God. Your own religion or good works, your own best efforts at doing what is right and putting away what is wrong, they will not avail you anything. I pray that you may be strengthened in your inner being with God's power. Lord, you must strengthen us so that Christ might dwell in us. You must enable us to know the love of Christ because we are too weak, we're too frail, too sinful in ourselves to know him and his love. So only if you make it happen can we be filled with all your fullness. So this whole passage, Ephesians 3, 14 to 19, with its clauses piled upon clauses, with its exalted language, the big idea is simply a prayer that says, God, you started it. You need to finish it. You started it. You need to finish it. You gave us new life. By your power, bring us to maturity. You carried us the first step. By your power, now bring us home. You gave yourself to us by your power. Now fill us with your fullness. And here's the good news for you and for us. God will, in fact, finish what he started. Look at verses 20 and 21. Paul can't help explode in a praise song of his own. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think, according to the power that is at work in us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, now and forever. His power is at work in us. Of course it is. Do we think that God, having gone to all the trouble to choose us and save us by the death of his own son, do we think that he will not bring to completion his intended purpose for us? If we need his power in order to know his love, will he now withhold that power? Of course not. Why? Because he loves us. He wants us to know his love. And so he will certainly enable us to know it. And so we also then, like Paul, pray for the church and for ourselves and for one another that God would strengthen us with his power deep inside, in our core, in our hearts, so that Christ might settle in and be at home in us, so that together we will know his love and be filled with all the fullness of God. We're going to hear a testimony in just a moment about exactly that. God at work in someone, bringing him to a fuller, deeper experience of God, turning a genuine but a surface faith into a greater understanding of God. This is the work of God in me. From being a genuine but a weak believer as a teenager to a real experience of God when I was 19, and for 23 years since then, a gradual increase of love for God, knowledge of God, growth in character and faith, fullness. 
I'm not there yet. There's ups and downs, but God has been at work in me, and I am further down the road than I was a year ago, than I was 20 years ago, and God will bring me all the way. This is God's work in our church. He is at work here, and he is right now bringing us along the road that he has for us toward fullness in him. So what then is the bottom line? Simply this. Pray. Pray for us as a church. Pray for your own growth. Pray for others. And as you pray, pray for God to strengthen with his power. Because it is only by his power that we can experience the love of Christ together and be filled with God's fullness. Do you long for more of God in your life? Do you long for more of God in this church? As you consider your Christian friends and family, do you long for them to experience more of the fullness of God? The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step and is made up of many steps. And we take this step today of praying that we would be strengthened with the power of God in our inner beings, each of us and together all of us. It is God who will walk us to his destination, to the end of the journey, and we'll find that when we get there, we will be at his home, and we will know fully what it means to know God and to be known by him. Amen. Let's pray. God, we're going to spend some time praying pretty soon. Now I simply ask that you would allow your word to settle in our hearts. Speak to us by your spirit the things that we need to own and believe and know to be true. By your power at work in us even now, let your holy word bear fruit. Through Jesus Christ, amen. I'm going to ask now, and we'll turn the recording off now, I think. Um, Joel, you come now. And uh, Joel shared some of his story with the seniors a couple months back. And uh, it, it encouraged me, and in many ways, feels like my own story. And uh, I asked him if he'd share it this morning, and he's going to do that. So.